Love Talk Radio. Listening to the LC and Jack Radio Show live from New York, and now here are your hosts, LC and Jack. Jack Radio Show with your man LC holding it down. Well, where is my partner in crime? Is he on the scene? Yes, he is. What up, LC? What's good? Hey, the ducks out here joining the pool party I have going on, you know? Whoa. Yeah, you know, the ducks are out here in the pond. I'm out here with them. <laughs> it is great to have you again there, partner, for another edition of the LC and Jack Radio Show. We'd like to uh, thank you for spending your time, your evening, to uh, listen to some entertainment, as they call it, radio. And what I love about radio, you learn new things. There's always something happening that you don't know about. Always. Always. We're going to make sure that you learn something tonight. But enough about that. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that a little later. If you want to give us a call, give us a shout. Area code 347-843-4738. You're listening to the LC and Jack radio show up close and personal. Urban Talk Radio. Well, Brad, how was your weekend, man? What's what's good? What was this up and popping, man? You always rolling somewhere. Yeah, I was, uh, where was I this weekend? Um, I, I was in two places. I was in Hicksville this weekend. I did a little local show, and then I went down to Lancaster, PA, and there's another fundraiser for nonprofits for the uh, Rotary East Lancaster. It was pretty hot, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, that was pretty much it, you know. I was on the grind, and a lot of news, though. I heard a lot of news this weekend. Man, a lot of stuff went down this weekend. But, you know, we stayed above water here on the East Coast, and uh, we're still sending our prayers out to the Midwest people and, and South. And that slow disaster that's developing down there in Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, and Louisiana, Alabama, and all that. Send our prayers out to them. And, yes, uh, our hearts and prayers. Our hearts and prayers go out. I concur with that sentiment there, Brad. Uh, you know, we always take for granted that, um, you know, life will roll along and nothing really is going to change what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I tell you, these people, 
uh, down there have had their lives changed totally. So, again, our prayers go out to all those friends, families, all those people affected right now. Yeah. So, uh, we'll, we'll keep you in our thoughts. And uh, But if you are down there and you are tuning in because you need some... Know, something to uplift you. We are here to do that each and every week on Blog Talk Radio, LC and Jack Radio Show. I tell you, man, there's so many different things going on, Brad. I guess the the one thing I didn't I didn't know that there are hotels that are three thousand dollars a night. Yeah. Are you aware of that three thousand dollars a night? Yes, sir. I don't even have uh, a buck fifty, more or less three thousand dollars, pay for a night at a hotel. You know, Robin Leach, lifestyle of the rich and famous, and that's one of the cheap ones, three thousand dollars a night. You know, that's one of the cheap ones. Three thousand dollars a night. Yeah. I don't know. That's That's uh, how they live. That's how they live. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, shoot. I mean crazy, but uh, I was away this weekend. I didn't spend $3,000 a night. Uh-huh. Yep, I was uh, up in, still in the state, up in Albany, New York. Big shout to them. A lot of listeners up there checking out the show. So big up to Albany. Went up there for First Communion. Very good uh-huh. friend of mine. Daughter was getting her First Communion, so... Got a great time, you know, had a great time. Nice quick trip up. Yeah. Quick trip back. In time to do the show. Ain't <laughs> nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. So that was fun. A chance to do that. Uh, had a, uh, really a chance to uh, step out last weekend as before I took off up out of town a chance to uh, hang out with some friends so it was a nice nice little weekend and it always goes so fast yeah oh especially when you're having fun you know oh man before you know it you know you get home from work Friday and then next thing you know freaking <laughs> Sunday night get ready to go to work and get on Monday wow so it does it is a quick turnaround but um, life is short, so enjoy your time with friends and family while you do have it. Well, Brett, I don't think we're going to waste too much time. We do All have right. a special guest this evening. And uh don't want to waste too too much time. We'd like to get right to it. All right. Sounds good. All right. Yeah, let's make it happen there, Brett. Our guest this evening has over 40 years of experience in the entertainment industry. He has written some of the most popular black movies of all time. Wow. And also created some of the most all-time classic songs for various legendary artists. And I purposely didn't name him because I'm going to allow this this man to uh, to name him this evening, and uh, we are so happy and well, you know, to welcome to the LC and Jack Radio Show this evening, Mr. Bernard 
Williams Jr. Jack, it's All right. a pleasure and an honor being on your show. Well, we thank we thank you again to jumping uh, on with us. My man Brett, my partner in crime, is hey. here. Corn bread. What's going on, Mister? That was the title of a movie. Lawrence <laughs> Burns career. I heard it many Cornbread times. Cornbread, Earl, and me. I'm trying to get some residual on that. You know what I'm saying? I, well, I had a little hand in that. We neither oh, one of us got no money. So. <laughs> we we got to talk later. We got to talk. <laughs> Somebody got to get paid. <laughs> well, I love you know. I used to. I lived in New York for a year. Okay. And uh, I like to think it's a, like a lyric from a song. I'm a. Uh, as a, well, to introduce myself to let your audience know, I'm a working photojournalist right now, mm-hmm. okay. and uh, I got my start in the business in New York City back in 1969, okay. and uh, so that's where I began my photojournalism. In fact, I learned writing for the screen and uh, television, my television career, screen career. Uh, songwriting, all of these things. The education I picked up in Harlem. I lived at good old uh, Harlem, New York. That's right. I lived on hey. 120th, right off of Lenox. Wow. <laughs> we we got a lot of people up in Harlem listening. Well, I'm gonna shout out to Harlem. I was on 120th and Lenox, and uh, I think it was 2020. Okay. Uh, uh, off of Lennox and uh, right down from what was then called the Club Baron. Club Baron. The Club Baron was a spot, and I think what Wilts Small's Paradise was right up the street. Uh, all you know, I, I I went to Harlem. The reason when I first came to New York, I just got out of the army. I was served. I'm a Vietnam era veteran and served with the 82nd Airborne Division and the 12th Special Forces Group. <clears throat> And uh, one of my uh, duty stations was the White House lawn during the King riots. In April 1968, I was assigned to the White House bodyguard, President Lyndon Johnson. And uh, spent 22 hours. They were sniper fire. They put me on the lawn. This is maybe a bit humorous to you. I don't know. Ironic. Uh, I was a top secret security clearance. We had to take an oath of office, you know, that I would protect the president with my life. Rather wow. ironic considering what happened, what caused the riot was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. But I was a black soldier who uh, was patriotic. My father served in World War II, fought at the Battle of the Bulge. I was a troop trainer, hand-to-hand special, uh, combat weapons specialist. And so <clears throat> I fit the bill for... They only wanted one man on the White House lawn so as not to provoke the crowd and not to have big targets. So they told me that they wanted me to perform, you know, to stay on duty at night because, A, if a white face was on the lawn, he'd be a better target. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I would be less of a target if (laughs) if they could put me on the lawn. Wow. Explain to me that you could get killed. Boy. And that if any sniper fire goes on, don't make a sound because we do not want to wake up the president. Mm. The president stayed up all night. I looked over my shoulder. He was standing in the window smoking a cigarette, chain smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Washington, D.C. burning. Like right out wow. of the movie. Right? And the, the bullets would hit the ground. 
and I would report it. And they uh, told me to go and pick up the bullets before the at dawn, so that no one would know that the president came that close to death. Wow. And that's a little known secret. And two, of, two wow. black soldiers tried wanted tried to assassinate him. Wanted wow. me to give up my M6. I had an M6 machine gun, and I told them no. And I called the Secret Service. They used to have little wells in the White House lawn that were elevators, and the hedges hit them. And these guys, six feet five, they were down in these little wells. And when I did a rally signal to tell them to take these two soldiers off, who were trying to convince me to give them their gun and go into the White House and attack the president. Mm. They rose up from behind me. And these are civilian clothes, but with Uzis, the latest uh, Israel weapon. And they hustled the guys off the lawn. But that's my little soldier story, which sets the stage oh, for right. me going to New York City. I met a girl in New York who was from uh, North Carolina. I met her in North Carolina. And uh, she... Um, told me that I should, before I go back to Chicago, because I was born and raised in Chicago, I should come to New York, and she still had, my kisses were burning on her lips. Romance, right? <laughs> you tell a 22-year-old soldier, getting the army that, I hear yeah. straight from New York City, brother. <laughs> Got off the trailway bus at Port Authority Terminal, and took a cab to Harlem. She lived, in, she lived in Brooklyn. I didn't know how to get to Brooklyn, but I knew how to get to Harlem. So I got up to Harlem and stayed in the little hotel. She came up and visited me. We had a wonderful night under the August sky, uh, open window, classic. I mean, you know, beautiful. But the girl wanted me to, uh, she worked in a factory. I thought it was a, <laughs> a factory. <laughs> Turns out it was a dope factory. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Jack City, the truth. Yeah, that's oh, how yeah, I stumbled into, all right. my, into my life. Did you see Nino? <laughs> yeah, she's, she's hanging out with Nino Brown. Well, that <laughs> might have been. <laughs> I wasn't him. I'm just, I'm a, you know, I'm fresh out of uh, the military. Yeah. And uh, she was from Carolina. I was from Carolina. I mean, I was. Uh, leaving Carolina. What, the reason I say Carolina is that I did not know it, but Frank Lucas, Bumpy Johnson had just died, which would lead into the Shaft story I got to tell you about. Mm-hmm. Bumpy Johnson was a legendary Harlem gangster who had just died. The gentleman gangster, they called him. Everybody loved him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really hip to him, you know, because I was from Chicago. But uh, she uh, told me if anybody asked me where I was from, just tell them I'm from Carolina. Well, it turns out that Frank Lucas and the boys who took over Bumpy's empire were from Carolina. So I got a real, you know, everybody looked at me in fear and respect. Because <laughs> I said I was from Carolina, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, this girl, I'm not going to spend too much time on her, but she um, told me she worked in a drug in, in a factory. Turns out it was a dope factory. Mm-hmm. And she wanted me to knock off... Uh, the dope dealer he had four dope houses take over his operation she hated dope dealers and she wanted to set him up I refused heartbroken I thought I was coming up to meet that I'm ready to marry this girl and now she finds out that she's a cold bloody killer 
Uh, she, told, she told me that her uh, name, her revolutionary name, is going to be Chesimard. <laughs> now, if you know anything about the history, you will put that together. I'm not going to go any further because that's kind of deep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. But uh, Angela Davis was headed uh, to my place because I knew the Panther 21 up there, and I lived in Harlem. You had to know the Panthers. And uh, one of the people, some of the people I met up there on the corner were the last poets. Helped them put together their movie right on. And uh, shot film for him. Brother Abu Dun is still out there and he can tell you about it. Well, he was in jail at the time. But uh, the last poets were, we all met at Langston Hughes' house on 130th Street. Langston had just passed. And it turned the people community had turned this house into a community museum, and that was the beginning of the Schomburg. What is now the Schomburg began there. That's right. And the Shabazz family, Malcolm X's people, were uh, tasked with making sure that no, no drugs and no problems went on there. So I played, learned drums and painting with Taiwo Shabazz, Otto Niels, who was a very good painter, uh, Abadola. Uh, who was a uh, Yoruba priest and a painter. So I met all kinds of people in the arts there. And uh, that was how I began to experience New York. You know, I got out of this love affair with this girl, and I went up there, found Langston Hughes' house. He was one of my heroes from Chicago, and found out he had passed, but that this was a place where I could come and spend my time, and I... Then uh, one day I was crossing the street to go to a little job I'd gotten at a clothing store, Leaders Men's Store on 125th Street, right down from the Apollo Theater, and uh, stumbled onto a movie set. They were filming Cotton Comes to Harlem. Okay. And uh, I didn't realize it was a movie. I just saw a bunch of people standing on the corner not moving. And in New York, you know, you learn how to there push <laughs> on the subway. I never knew it. A little old lady pushed me like I, she was a football player. Mm-hmm. And they taught me that you you do not wait. You push your way through. I pushed my way through the crowd, got out in the street. A truck comes flying around the corner on two wheels and hits a body. And the body flies in the air 40 feet high. It stuns me. I turn around and I point to the body is coming down and I'm asking the people around me, did you see that? They're all standing there <laughs> as though nothing had happened. Which is what you're supposed to do in a movie, right? <laughs> yeah. But I didn't realize that I was in a movie set so I'm pointing, what? Did you just see that? This guy just got <laughs> killed. <laughs> you're standing around not doing nothing. Somebody go help him. <laughs> right? Well, I hear a voice in the background which turned out to be Ossie Davis say, cut get that guy's name alright I figure it out then oh shit I done messed up excuse my language radio I done messed up somebody's movie right so I kinda walked briskly walked across the street I didn't run you know I'm a paratrooper from the special force I ain't running from nothing but I walked <laughs> real fast <laughs> I walked real fast to my job where two guys followed me in I thought they'd come there to serve me papers, you know, because I'd have messed up this movie. They said, nah, man, the director really liked that scene, and he wants to put it in the movie. He just wants you to sign this release. Mm-hmm. 
wow. takes them a half an hour for me to get me to sign the release, but I finally signed the release just to get them away, you know, just to get go to work. I just got in the job. I'm trying to make enough money to get back to Chicago. Uh, so guy comes back a week later and says they're starting a program, the American Film Institute, along with the Ford Foundation, had begun a program called the Community Film Workshop Councils of America, whereby they were training young African Americans, Afro-Latian whites, and Latinos from underserved communities, mm-hmm. filmmaking, in an effort to preserve the art of filmmaking in America, as well as to preserve the films that were made. Uh, so what they wanted to do was to start a university, a college. And the Community Film Workshop Councils was a... The courses that they taught me were combined. For nine months, I got the equivalent of a college education in film. I learned lighting, sound, uh, camera, cinematography, directing, production, all technical aspects, great screenwriting, continuity from A to Z. And then I taught filmmaking in two workshops, the Black Film Workshop of Brooklyn and the Black, you know, Bronx, Black Film Workshop of Bronx and Black Film Workshop in Harlem, which was at Langston Hughes' uh, place. And I taught that filmmaking workshop to the last poets and encouraged them to make a film out of their poem. They had just written Die, Nigga, and uh, a few other very cutting edge poems, and they took my and they I referred them to the Cannes Film Festival. They won the Cannes Film Festival, 1971, the Palm d'Or, the Gold Palm Award, went to the Last Poets. Which, if you don't, some people may not know that history, but rap started in New York City with the Last Poets. That's right, and uh, I was there, so I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> Alrighty, <laughs> let's go, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> Let them know. Let, let, those, let those boys from the South know where it started. That's it. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm just telling the truth. I was there, and I saw it happen. In fact, Gil Scott Heron was, I, we can talk like this because it's New York. You know, he was a junkie back in the day in New York. And he was a, what they, he was a school, the college boy. That's what they called him in Harlem because every month when he got his tuition money, he would come to 125th Street and Lennox, right where the subway comes out, yeah. and and sit there and wait. The Studio Museum was right around the corner, and I thought he was an artist or whatever, but he wasn't into that. He was into waiting, and that's where he scored his drugs, right? Now, the guy was very well-dressed. You know, he, he was up in Massachusetts someplace, so he was the only guy in Harlem that I saw not wearing a dashiki. <laughs> Very well-dressed, very well-tailored, good-looking, handsome, tall guy. But he would sit there and nod off. So one day I brought my, when I began a filmmaking class and stuff, I, I had to do a two-minute film interviews, learn news-type interviews, because I had chosen to go into the news profession, to be a news film cameraman. So I set my camera up at the uh, subway stop. Gil Scott Heron's sitting over there nodding out. He looks up and sees I'm setting the camera up, and he runs up to me and puts his hand up. No, you can't, you can't put that up here. You can't take pictures in there. You work for the white man. Uh, I said, hold it, wait a minute, brother. After he ragged me for a while, 
you know, and I was straight out of the Army Special Forces. I kill a brick. And that's the way I still am. I'm one of these old school brothers. I can throw down. And even wherever I'm at. Well, I went, when the brother came upon me, I said, well, look, brother, the revolution will not be televised. It will be in your face live. And if you put your hands on my camera, I'm going to kill your ass to prove it. That became the revolution will not be televised. I heard him do a poem. He sat down after I told him that because I was telling serious. You know, $10,000 worth of film equipment I got up here and this junkie going to mess my shit up? <laughs> not going to happen. I don't care if you are 6'5 and you call yourself Gil Scott here. And the reason why I knew his name was because of brother on the corner told me his story and said his name is Heron and that's what he here for, Heron <laughs> which in New York you know y'all call Heron Heron yeah. so uh, yeah so that starts my adventures in New York and it seemed like I was meeting creative people like that all through there the only problem was drugs I've never been an advocate I've never used drugs don't believe in them yeah. and so I you know, I didn't fit in. And uh, a lot of the opportunities that I came into, I would leave in midstream because I wanted to keep my own personal integrity. You know, my girlfriend's working at a dope house, wants me to kill the dope deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. I leave that, I come out on the street, these guys, I'm trying to do my job, and the brother comes up and threatens me, and I got to tell him, you know, it'll be in your face if you don't leave me alone. All of these things... Drugs were killing New York. I think New York went through bankruptcy back in the day. Yep. And uh, I had gotten a job on Wall Street with Goldman. Well, it wasn't Goldman Sachs. It was Sa- uh, Gold. Goldman back then, just Goldman. It wasn't Goldman Sachs. To be a margin clerk, I got when I got the job opportunity with the American Film Institute, I took that, left that, and went into that. And there I met... People like Richard Wesley, which I collaborated with to do the movie. As I mentioned, you I heard in your intro, you talked about the uh, movies and things that I've been involved with. That's so right. I'll tell uh, your I audience. Well, I wanted to save the actual names. I wanted to allow you to do that, but right. I wanted to uh, no, definitely. Yeah, that was uh, proper. That's a good protocol and proper respect. If I'm going to claim it, I'll name it. That's right. That's and, it. Uh, you know, I don't want nobody calling you back saying, man, you Oh, they can call. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I know you New York. So I know you, you know, I know you're cool with that. <laughs> they can call us. Yeah, so Richard Wesley, who was uh, a recent graduate of Howard University's theater department, uh, was working as, uh, wrote, was editing the Black Theater newsletter in Harlem for of the all the off Broadway black theater companies. Uh, I think Barbara Antier had uh, her group, and I'm trying to remember what that was. They were doing ceremonies in Dark Old Man. I was uh, Woody King of the New Federal Theater had just started, and he and Cliff Frazier sent me over to the New Lafayette Theater to learn lighting and theater, so properly how to handle filmmaking. You know, structured stage look. So I was doing an internship over there at the New Lafayette Theater with Ed Bullens and Robert Macbeth. Robert Macbeth, yes. Uh, he was the director. Bullens was the playwright. And uh, so 
walking one of the long New York night uh, streets. You know how long the blocks are in New York. Oh, yeah. Blocks. Uh, on uh, one particular night, Richard Wesley, who was studied, he had gotten his master's and was writing for theater. When he found out I was a filmmaker, I was teaching film, he said, I want to make a movie, man. I want to get out of this theater thing and make a movie. I said, well, let's do one now. He said, well, can we? I said, yeah. You help me? I said, yeah. They come up with an idea. So he came up with an idea about uh, the after-hours joints that used to be very prevalent in Harlem and all out throughout New York, where you could go and get a drink and play poker or gamble or anything you wanted, you could go to an after-hours joint. It's like a speakeasy. Yeah, the juke joints, the they call. What did you say? Juke joints. Yeah. 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 So he, uh, his premise was about some factory workers who go to one of the juke joints because he had heard that well, this had happened to somebody that he actually knew who went to one of these juke joints and it was robbed and his lottery ticket the winning lottery ticket was uh, stolen from him and so the rest of the film you know I told him I said well okay well, uh, what are we going to call it he said well we call it Uptown Saturday Night I said well you mean downtown don't you he said, no. And then I found out in New York, you say uptown. You know, it's uptown, going, baby. Yeah, this is going uptown. So <laughs> that's how Uptown Saturday Night got put together. And I suggested since uh, Sidney Portier was on the board of the Community Film Workshop Councils of America, along with Shirley MacLaine, Harry Belafonte, and Gordon Parks, and Robert Snyder, who was head of Columbia Studios. Uptown uh, Saturday Night, a classic, classic, all-time classic. Well, that was it was fun for me, and it was fun for Richard. Although, unfortunately, Richard has never acknowledged that. You know, we only spent a few times together. Uh, we, he was, you know, doing the playwright side. I was doing lights for Clara's old man and going to Buffalo, which were two of the premier plays that were out at the. Uh, New Lafayette at the time. And uh, I also told him he ought to, if the first one we do is successful, then he ought to do three more. And that became, we developed those two walking up to the job at New Lafayette. Uh, and he put out a name, Booty Farnsworth, about a ghetto kid who becomes a boxer and knocks out all the tough guys in, uh, <laughs> in you know, boxing matches put on in the community. And uh, I, of course, laughed at the name Bootney Farnsworth. Where do you get a name like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, well, it's got to be a comedy, man. Because we right. were talking about a drama, and I said, well, it's got to be a comedy. So I put together the scenarios for, uh, at the time, you know, Ken Norton was boxing Muhammad Ali, and he had taken hypnosis to fight Ali. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that was a premise that we had... Uh, that I used for this whole uh, second sequel, and then we did another sequel as well. And uh, there were people available like uh, Paula Green, Harry Bella. I told him that Belafonte, no, uh, Sidney Portier was looking for a directorial piece, and that he would be probably a good investor. And I had to connect because. Uh, he was on the board of the Community Film Workshop Council of America, community and the American Film Institute. Mm-hmm. 
So that's how Richard accessed the people to put that movie together. And I did the script. So that's one. And I'm going to take you to another one right quick because it's about the same three guys. That was Buck and the Preacher. Wow. And I wrote Buck and the Preacher on the subway, the A train. In fact, going back. Famous A train. New York A train, baby. I was on, I was in Harlem, buddy. So <laughs> I was on the A train. I learned how there to get the A train, right? You know when you. But I went to New York. One of the first things I had to learn, it told me you better learn how to take the A train. So they run <laughs> all the way down into Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was on the A train, and it was a long ride. And there was a guy named Drake Walker who was going to audition for a television or a movie series called Pursuit of Happiness. It's not the Pursuit of Happiness that the guy here in Chicago wrote, but this was, he was auditioning, right? And he, and I told him I was a filmmaker, and he asked me to help him write a film that he had in his mind. So I asked him, where's the script? There was no script. He wrote down, you know, he told me the name of it was Buck and the Preacher, right? And I asked him what it was about. It was about ex-slaves who were heading to the pro- to the the story of ex-slaves heading to California from south and the things that they went through. That was his. But I asked him. You know, he said he didn't have me. That's all he had in his head. He wanted to write about. So I told him I put it together for him, and I put together the scenario for Buck and the Preacher, which in again. Uh, included primary characters uh, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier and also uh, Harry's wife who was a strikingly beautiful woman to play the Indian maid who would be the key to negotiating their travel through the treacherous journey they had to make to California Mm -hmm. which still had Apaches and all that stuff at the time right so that was uh, and I put together uh, the weaponry for it. I was a weapon specialist in the army, and one of the most deadly weapons on the street of America at the time was a sawed-off shotgun, which is now <laughs> illegal. And I told them that we would arm our wagon master with two sawed-off shotguns and holsters, which would take down any five or ten white men. What no, you know, white races. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to. No, I understand exactly where you're coming. Yeah, the antagonists were white, what they call patty rollers. They were the people that were set out to take the slaves back to the plantations and make them sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. They were, I had to make them the protagonist and the antagonist and devise a plot, which was basically a journey. They travel. Most of my films had to do with uh, the epic travel, the chase, the journey, in which you encounter various obstacles and terrain and, and people, and you overcome that to get to the promised land, black people, from slavery, out of slavery, into the promised land, which is California. So um, one, of the, one of the keys to that, I used to put little codes in there, was... Uh, the uh, elder in that movie was a an actor uh, who 
had acted in the 1920s. If you look at Buck and the Preacher, you remember an old, gray-haired old man who gives them advice and finally gets to California and points to it. He was an actual actor who had a restaurant on 39th and uh, 43rd, I think it was, 43rd and King Drive. His name was Clarence Muse. Mm-hmm. And I told uh, Drake Walker that Clarence Muse would have to be in this movie. And that he was an actor, and he could play the elder, slave, who gets to see the promised land like Moses before he dies. So that was a Chicago, that's one Chicago connection. Because Clarence Muse was in Chicago at the time, running the restaurant. I used to go there when I was a kid. Uh, the other look was uh, the Bible in the book. That came from a movie I saw was starring James Mitchum, in which he played a preacher who was bogus preacher who carried his gun in his Bible, cut the pages out, <laughs> and that's where the Bible in the book, which was the way preacher, which was Harry Belafonte, was to carry his uh, gun, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Let's see, the uh, Chase, Ruby D, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, right? Ruby D played Buck's wife. So all the people that were mentoring me and supporting me, I put in this movie. And I told Drake Walker to take it to him and that they would help him make the movie, which they did. But Drake never told nobody that I was the guy who put him on it and designed it and put it together for him. So there you have Buck and the Preacher. Bucking and the preach. story why I'm still anonymous. Well, we had to make sure you get your claim. Is this? Uh, well, this you time. know, you're doing a great job of because I know, and I'll let your audience know that this is a worldwide portal. That's right. Your radio station can be heard across the globe. That's, That's right. Information highway affords you. The accessibility to nations where we never, even in broadcast, we never had the ability to do this. TV stations, whatever. So I appreciate this because I know that there are literally millions of people listening to what I'm saying. Right? My my thing is uh, history. I'm a historian. I'm not chasing nobody for money. I've never asked, you know, or sued anybody, although I was encouraged to do that. I uh, knew that it was a part of the reason why I wasn't uh, recognized was because I didn't stay with the project. I took a job in another city and left New York. And you know, when you leave something in New York, somebody else's friend or whoever's buddy or his girlfriend is going to get greatest yeah. credit. Because somebody going to jump on it. Somebody going to yeah. jump on it and get paid. Yeah. Right. And I, all I had was a handshake and a promise. That's it. And uh, so... You know, I understood. People told me you got to have contracts. What twenty-two-year-old guy in school is walking around with contracts in his pocket? Nobody. Nobody. You know. So what I did was I had uh, a lot of creativity going on. I was being trained by some masters. You know, Gordon Parks was awesome, and the guy asked me if he could call me by my first name. Uh, Bernie, can I call you Bernie? I said, Mr. Parks, you can call me anything you want to. <laughs> this is Gordon Parks. <laughs> you know? And he introduced me to people.
people like James Vanderzee, who was a historic portrait artist. All these pictures you see the guys standing in their finery in front of cars in Harlem, New York, back in the day. Right. The, that was the photographer who took those pictures, who I learned from, James Vanderzee and Gordon Parks. I helped put together Superfly. Superfly. Superfly, wow. you're going to make your fortune by and by, but if you lose, don't ask no questions why. Because <laughs> you Superfly. <laughs> that was the last one. Well, how that happened was uh, Gordon Park Sr. had put me on my first uh, photo journalism job, my first photo job. I needed money. I was up there broke. He called the office. He was looking for somebody to do a photo shoot that he couldn't make. He was in Connecticut. And Roy Ennis of the Congress on Racial Equality, he was the director of CORE back then, uh, wanted a photo portrait. And uh, Gordon couldn't do it, but Gordon asked for somebody who could. You know, and he said, ask me if I ever shot. I said, well, not really. I picked up a camera, but I don't really. He said, well, I'll tell you, I'll give you a real good crash course. You need some money. I was one of his students. He said, you can go out there and make this money. Do as I you know, he said, look for available lights. You can work with shadows. If you don't have a flash, he told me how to use light. And I'd already studied lighting, so I knew how to shoot with available light. Mm-hmm. So I got a Nikon camera, told him my price was $150. He called Roy Ennis. Roy Ennis said, okay. He sent me over. So he had his son was there to give me directions once I got to the place of 135th Street. Uh, I think it was where the Schomburg is now. His office was up there by the YMCA or something like that. Uh, and uh, so Gordon's son was interning at James Vanderzee's studio, which was down in the basement of the building. And they were kind of making jokes and smoking a joint. Tell <laughs> you the truth. That'll make your joke all right. And, and uh, so I asked him, they could tell me where Congress race and they pointed to the office and they laughed at me because they it was known in New York that Roy Ennis was one of those two fisted guys. If he didn't like something you did, he would kick your you know what and throw you out of his office. That's it. But I didn't know nothing about that. And uh I went on in, saw Roy, looked at the lighting, it's very dark complex, it was a tough job, but I set the lighting there used a lamp and he had a red rose on his desk and I used that rose for contrast to his color explained to him that red, black and green which was the colors of the African American freedom flag mm-hmm. matched his complexion the rose and the uh, the one of those Tiffany green Tiffany desk lamp have you ever seen it? The yeah I know what you're talking about with a gold base <clears throat> so he liked that. I took the photos. He paid me my money, $150, right there. Didn't even look at the negatives of the proof. Didn't even ask for them. Bam. Yeah. I said, so you know. I said, <laughs> you were like, yo, I'm out. <laughs> I'm good, buddy, and I'm out. Yeah. And that's where I started my photojournalism, which I'm still doing. Still making my living with a camera. And uh, so I come out, and I meet Gordon. And he, they were amazed that I got paid. And that I didn't know about no cussing, no arguing. So then he asked me what I did, and I told him I was a filmmaker. And he said, well, you know, I want to make a movie, too, but my father won't let me. He's got me, he told me I got to learn the still work first. 
what what had happened was Gordon Parks, and this is for your audience also to know. A lot of people claim to be the the first black filmmaker. Van Peebles, a few other. I got stories about him too. First person who did paint it down. The first person who that I saw. The two pioneers in this business were uh, Harry Belafonte, who did Odds Against Tomorrow, and uh, Gordon Parks, who did The Learning Tree. The Learning Tree was a story of a coming of age of a boy in the Southwest, and uh, was sort of like To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. It was on, you know, it was sort of like that, but it was the learning tree is what it was called. Gordon Parks directed, shot at everything, and it was playing in theaters, and was a great example of what black people could do. But it was lost in the shuffle, whatever, whatever. Uh, I was had access to Harry Belafonte. Belafonte had uh, he was on the board for one. And he had just finished a film called The Angel Levine. Now, The Angel Levine was a sort of a weird premise, but it goes with Harry's philosophy. He was a civil rights leader, and he worked tirelessly to promote uh, friendship and kinship between Jews and African Americans. So The uh, Angel Levine is based on a black Jew who dies in a purse snatching. And uh, is given one more chance to get into heaven by coming to earth and helping a white Jew and his wife who live in a black neighborhood. And that was the movie, Permit, right? So Harry Belafonte is the angel Levine. And uh, the movie was a little bit ahead of his time, but for me, Zero Mostel was the other lead in the movie. You know, it was a little too deep for a young man. And we, most of us, got up and walked out of the movie halfway through. One of the reasons was that Harry used black and white for the first half of the film. He shot in grainy black and white. In the second half of the film, he shot in color. Oh, wow. Yeah, but you see, black and white, nobody was looking at black and white back then. So everybody, when they saw they was in a black and white movie, they got up and left. And Belafonte freaked out, went into therapy, closed his studio, and got out of the film business. Harry Belafonte used to have a film company on 57th Street, right above the Walter Reed Theater. So he wonders why, you know... His, the people who were supposed to be supporting him got up and walked out of the movie. It was real simple, Harry. He asked me. I told him, because you had a black and white movie, and we don't, you know, we're not trained to do, um, we're not necessarily trained, but nobody appreciates a black and white movie. You've got to have color these days. That's why people ain't going to the movies. Right. So he accepted that. I asked him for the film equipment that he was giving, giving you know, getting rid of, he was closing the studio, so he had about $60,000 worth of film equipment, and my people asked me to go there, because I was well-spoken, and I wasn't afraid of nobody, and asked Harry, where they knew he was mad at everybody, cussing people out, so they didn't want to ask, and they sent me again, <laughs> into the lion's den, and I did, I boded well, I met uh, Mr. Schultz there, and uh, Harry was still in character, <clears throat> 
as a junkie being killed, you know, under the, the angel of Eve. But he listened intently while his people talked to me, and I asked him if he would donate the equipment. They asked what they was going to get out of it, and I told him, well, I'll write a film. I've been doing these scripts, and I had a knack for it. And the one guy who was interning there, his name was Michael Schultz. He was interning for the Director's Guild and uh, wanted to do his Director's Guild. And, well, he was at Belafonte's studio, for, and he's about to be out of a job because Belafonte was closing studios, and he said he would help me if I would help him with his film project. And he said he wanted to write a film. He had contacted a guy who had sent him a film script from Chicago about a housing project. And he asked me which was the toughest housing project in Chicago. I told him Cabrini Green, because my sister lived there. And whenever I visited her, I had to carry a pistol on the elevator. Wow. That's how tough they were. They would shoot you and throw you off the roof in a New York minute. Deadly. <laughs> and... uh so he said he wanted to make a movie about that, but he didn't have a hook. He didn't have a, you know, a premise. This is about a guy named Preach, you know, who, and more or less, this is a young guy who's preaching uh, that he's going to be a movie star and this, that, and the other. He's, a, you know, signifying and all those things that we grew up doing, but there was no real... Uh, in other words, he had not, he, he didn't have a good working script. He had a rough script. So I told him I'd put something together uh, on the premise of a basketball player and his buddies who have aspirations, go to quarter parties, steal a car, <laughs> almost get caught. You know, eventually the basket, star basketball player gets shot. That actually happened to my brother who was a star basketball player here at High Park High School and won a state championship for him and then was shot in 1968 when I was in the Army and almost died. Wow. So I used that as a premise. And then the the Cabrini-Green projects were unique in that they were the only projects who had their own high school. And that high school was Cooley High. And Cooley High was actually a factory that the Board of Education bought and redid into a, a, a high school. And the funny thing about when you play basketball at Cooley High, nobody wanted to play basketball at Cooley High because the ceilings, you could, you had to shoot line drive jump shots. You couldn't shoot, <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't shoot a high arc, you know. No high arc shots. No high arc at all. <laughs> <laughs> and... That was the story when you went to Cabrini Green, I mean, the Cooley High, even if you was in the red division, you sometimes you lost if you didn't have a, a crip game, you know, backboard. Because <laughs> basketball would hit the ceiling, right? So I, uh, that wasn't part of the movie, but that was, I told him about Cooley High and the fact, the reason why was that the white people in Old Town and other places around there were well-to-do Northside did not want to send their kids to school with these project kids. No. Right. Well, it's so the same now. There ain't nothing changed. Yeah. Ain't <laughs> nothing that, that was Cooley High. That was how, and I worked on, I wrote the script of the scenario, gave them the idea for the stolen car sequence using Navy Pier, which is here, it was abandoned at the time as a location. It's now a thriving, that movie opened up the potential of 
Navy Pier now is one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world. Yes, it is. And that's where Cooley High was shot there, uh, one of the locations. And the uh, quarter parties and the dance parties and the music soundtrack, all of those things I referred and put that together. And it became a movie that was shot here in Chicago. And when it was bought here, I used to hang out in Old Town, and I saw... Uh, the two actors, Lawrence Hill Jacobson and what's his name? He played the lead. Glenn Terman. <clears throat> Glenn Terman were at a bar in Old Town and I saw him dressed up like Ivy Leaguers with the little caps and everything that we used to wear back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then when they told me they were making a movie, I said, well, what is it? They wouldn't tell me, but they were laughing at each other, you know, and whatever. I said, well, hey, you know, I might have had something to do with that. What do you mean? I said, well, I proceeded to tell them uh, some of the stuff I'd done in New York, which was Shaft. I helped put together Shaft. I told you about... Uh, Did he say Shaft there, Brad? Shaft. 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 All-time great. Yeah. Three of them. That Shaft was also a, a triquil. Uh, Three-movie script that I did. And I'll tell you the story. I'm going to jump off Cooley High because... See you, your audience may be interested in Shaft. Shaft. Uh, hold on one second there, Bernard. If you're yes, just sir. tuning in, you're listening to the LC and Jack radio show with our special guest this evening, Mr. Bernard Williams Jr. I didn't say that, I don't believe initially. Gotta yes, give him did. that distinction. And he is just dropping the line. He's just dropping us. You know, he's enlightening us to uh, some of the all time classic black movies he has mentioned so far. And, let me, and correct me. If I didn't include them all up up to now, which is Uptown Saturday Night, I know everybody out there has has seen that movie, Bucking the Preacher, and Superfly, as well as Cooley High. He just mentioned Cooley High. I tell you, he's already got my head spinning on those four. I'm telling you, he's got some more. Yeah, well, I'm about to to drop some more on you. Go ahead. Shaft, Drop it on. And if a lot of people don't know it, but Shaft was written. The book Shaft and the character was created by a man named Ernest Tidyman. Ernest Tidyman was white. And the problem that Shaft had when they, Ernest Tidyman wrote the book shortly after Bumpy Wood, uh, Johnson died, trying to cash in on Bumpy Johnson's legend. It was about a black people and so they got a green light to make it into a movie mm-hmm. however nobody black wanted to touch it they tried to get Chester Himes to direct it Chester Himes said no because nobody was going to believe uh, the premise of the movie because everybody knew that Bumpy Johnson didn't have a daughter <laughs> back in the 40s who was kidnapped by the mob his cousin in fact was kidnapped and killed by the mob but not his daughter so they've taken poetic license with Bumpy Johnson's history, which is a no-no in New York. You know that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, a guy named Kenneth Hutt had been uh, befriending me, so to speak. He would invite me to his house, <clears throat> and we would drink wine with Bob Attaway, who was the guy who got me in the film business. And uh, this guy was trying to shop a movie called, his movie idea called Hannibal the Cannibal. 
which I was very objective to. He says about a guy who was a cannibal who picked people's brains. He wanted to pick my brain. And that was a, it was a slang for getting ideas from you back in the day. Right. But this guy took it to another level with a movie script about a cannibal who eats people's brains. Well, of course, that's way out. I don't dig this guy's concepts, but he was a nice enough guy. He was also a drug user. He used drugs with Bob and uh, Bob Attaway, and Bob was off into it, and I had to kind of step back off of him. But before that, I met him. He asked me to help him with a movie that he was dealing with called Midnight Cowboy, and he said he needed an opening scene. And so I gave him uh, a scene where the of a this is about a young white country boy who comes to New York to be a pimp. And so the opening scene I gave him was my experience coming to New York myself, which I didn't come there to be no pimp. <laughs> right. But I the trailway bus. I got on the trailway bus, and then I told him to take an overhead bird's eye view of the bus on its travel up to New York, passing the various towns, cities, street signs, with the guy looking out the window to a song, music, soundtrack, and that that would be his opening scene, which would help him because they had a kind of a weak script, right? So he liked that. That became the opening scene of Midnight Cowboy with Dustin Hoffman and the other guy, right? But this was not out yet. Then he also had another movie. He was he, This guy was a hustler. His name was Kenneth Utt, and he was just like a movie hustler. He would jump from work to work. He wasn't an actor. He wasn't. He was trying to shop his movie, so he would help people on their projects, steal ideas from people, and use them to try to get money for his film. Nobody ever dealt with him. For like ten years, he didn't get to make Hannibal the Cannibal until he had sold out so many of us. You know? Wow! <laughs> Cannibalized other people's ideas until he got it, and I'll tell right, you how he got goes. on. Kenneth Hutt was his name, uh, and uh, anyway. Uh, the I objected because Hannibal was known as a great general and back in those days black was beautiful and you did not demean the name of somebody as great as Hannibal by saying he was a cannibal and Butt was trying to tell me he couldn't have crossed the Alps without resorting to cannibalism mm-hmm. and I'm saying no nah, no nah, you, you, that's just somebody's nobody in history has ever said that it's your idea you know I don't I don't buy it so we had a falling out about that, but he would still come back around and hang around and ask me to help him. So when I graduated from my film class, uh, Ossie Davis and Ruby D handed me my diploma. Arthur Penn was there. He was starting a project called Little Big Man, and he came up and asked me to work with him. And the sleazeball Kenneth Hutt comes up, offers me a glass of champagne and congratulations, and then stands there and takes up my time and asks me if I would please help him with this. So in order to get rid of him, I said, okay. He asked if he could tape record it. Arthur Penn walks away. Otherwise, I could have been working with Arthur Penn, right? But I chose to do it because Shaft was a black character. Uh, and so I gave him uh, ideas. I told him he's going to have to update it because nobody's going to go see a period piece movie. It was from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, clothing, costumes, because everybody's wearing dashikis now and afros. Mm-hmm. So 
the main character would have to be updated. I used my profile as a former Green Beret paratrooper, Special Forces. For Chad, the main character would be a young black man named Chab, who was a former police officer who became or becomes a private eye and is well known in Harlem and all around New York as being a tough guy who could get a job done. Uh, Bumpy Johnson comes to him to find his daughter who was kidnapped by the mafia in order to force him to turn over the numbers racket to him, which was everybody knew, right? So uh, I cast the lead character. He said, well, who's going to get it to play it? Nobody wants to touch it because it's written by a white man. I said, well, this guy, Richard Roundtree, the guy who was Richard Roundtree, the history of Richard Roundtree was he started out playing football at Southern Illinois University here in Chicago, state of Illinois. Not in Chicago, but right up from Carbondale. Graduated as a football player. Became a model with Ebony Magazine. The reason I know him is because they offered me the job first. I am 6'2", and I'm way 200 pounds. I'm not a bad-looking guy, so I had helped Jet Magazine put together the Jet Centerfold because I knew a lot of pretty girls. And they wanted to make me a model. Well, you know, me being a street brother... It wasn't macho to say your job is a model. <laughs> you know, it's kind of most model people would say right off, "You a sissy." Right. <laughs> so I was homophobic. I didn't want to have nothing to do with you. <laughs> Use all you gay people out there, but I was not going there back in them days. So I, I said, I'm no, saying, I don't want to be a model. Well, Richard Roundtree took the job, and. Jet, I mean, Johnson's products had a hair care product called Duke Hair Pomade and Murray. If any of you old schoolers know, that was pomade with some thick grease that you put in your head to slick the, your kinky hair down to make it straight. Well, when Afros came out, all you did was you just used it to put a sheen in your hair. It was called, he was the Duke Hair Pomade Man. As well as the uh, J-Mar Slacksman. Now, on the back of every Jet magazine, there was a picture of him every week. So we, this guy, Kenneth Thud, asked me about who he would use to, he, you know, somebody wouldn't cost a lot and was unknown, but had a draw. I said, well, I picked up a Jet magazine and said, you see this guy here? He's on the back of Jet magazine every week. So at least... Six million black people see his face every week. Every week. So they would go to a movie just to see if he could act. And he doesn't really have to act. All he's got to do is smile, be sexy, be, take his clothes off and get in bed with a pretty woman. <laughs> hey, Brad, can you, can you do that? <laughs> hey, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I think I can do that. that. Right. Hey, but no, I want you ride a roll, man. So, uh, so, so me and Brad can get in there. We can lay in bed. You got hey, it. You the got honeys. It. I ain't have to say nothing. <laughs> you don't have to say nothing. All you gotta do is have a How they say hearty it? laugh. How do you say it? I just lean back. Eating <laughs> <laughs> out of a driveway in a car. You gotta do some stunts now, okay? <laughs> well, I can do some stunts, all right. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I know you can, buddy. Done right now. <laughs> New York, New York. Look at here. New York turned me out, brother. I was about to marry that girl I told you about. Jessamar, she's sending that one. So I 
know where you come coming from. And I've been there. Sounds good. Fond memories. So she was to be sexy, you know, a guy who could fight. And uh, that was the character. That That's how Richard Roundtree got cast for the character Shaft. Okay. And he, he only got $12,000 for that role. A lot of people don't know that. But that's all he got. And uh, I put together the stunts for it which were the scene where he comes through the window with a Molotov cocktail. Yeah. Well, in reality, that was completely out of the out of uh, possibility, the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. The only reason the Molotov was in there was because black people <laughs> were throwing Molotov cocktails, and that was the most feared weapon in the black arsenal back then. Oh, yeah. was a Molotov cocktail. All right? Firebomb. That's what that is, a firebomb. Well, Damn it. I learned repelling. What 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 that scene was about was guy Shaft repels down the side of a building, and I knew how to repel, and I knew how to describe the stunt and tell him how to do it. Mm-hmm. And crashes through a window and has a shootout with the gangster, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you realistically speaking, Somebody else decided to put the Molotov. They said, well, what about a Molotov? You use a Molotov instead of a gun. Hey, a Molotov cocktail of that size, coming through the window, it would have spilled and broke. Shaft would have been on fire. Everybody would have been on fire. Every, right? You see what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So that was to let you know the adjustment in the script that I told to make, but they insisted on a Molotov, right? Uh, and I told... so. He comes through, uh, rescues the girl, gets shot, is up the next day, kicking some more ass. <laughs> and he used a charger, the char- Dodge Charger and the Dodge Challenger, which I was familiar with. I drove down in the south with the cars he used. The clothes designer told him he had to have very sharp outfits. We in Chicago like the style just like y'all in New York. That was part of Superfly. <laughs> listen, listen, that was our family car back in the day because of that movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Couldn't yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the style, you know. So the Shaft's outfit is a takeoff of the Eisenhower jackets, which World War II veterans wore, which was a short waist high with a double breast uh, brown jacket. Well, I designed it to be a leather. I said, do it in leather with uh, turtlenecks. I like turtleneck sweaters. And uh, also his trench coat would be done in black and brown leather, double-breasted with belt. That was my favorite trench coat. Dan Douglas used to make custom trench coats in Chicago like that. So that was his basic outfit, which was basically sports jackets, leathers, and turtlenecks. I wonder why he wore turtlenecks all the time. Well, that's because you can't snatch a tie. If you try to put a sports coat on, <laughs> you put a tie on, uh, in the street, somebody yeah. grabs you by the tie. Yeah, they're going to wring your neck. That's, that's right. right. You over. <laughs> but if you're wearing a turtleneck, you can't yeah. really, you know, you, it's close. You cover it'll your pull. throat too if somebody it'll, it'll tries pull, to cut you. It ain't going to go nowhere. <laughs> right. So that was uh, how Shaft got made. And then after I told this guy all of this and asked him at the end, I said, well, what's in it for me? He looked me straight in the eye and said, nothing. Wow. Kenneth That's Utt. crazy. And walked away. 
I think I think I would have. I felt like it, but I'm at my film graduation. <laughs> I got people. I see Davis and Ruby D. I cannot kick this boy's ass in front of Arthur Pirro. You know. Yeah. So what can I do but let the cat walk out? And he did. That's it. And if you ever see the back of the original album cover, oh, the album, I put together the lyrics and the soundtrack to it, and I'll tell you how that went, because it's a surprise to a lot of people. Wait a minute, you also wrote? Wrote the soundtrack and arranged and composed the soundtrack and wrote the lyrics. LC, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to give up my You The Man title and give it to Mr. Bernard here. <laughs> no, you are still the man. You know why? Because you are doing something that one day somebody's going to look back on and call you a pioneer. This yeah. blog radio station yeah. is on the information highway. Yes, sir. And, uh, brothers, I'm telling you, you're making history right now. Yes, I am sir. now a historian. But yes, you sir. are getting out there. This is going to be global. And if we ever travel to another planet... Guess what the communications and all of the information and the music and the history of our lives is going to be on the information hype, this Internet that you guys are doing right now. Okay. All right. So you're blazing a trail that the FCC is going to have to look at and say. Yes, sir. <laughs> just like, just like yes, Puff and the rest of these boys have been making their yeah. crazy money off of rap. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Chilling. You are. I'm just I'm just giving you my take on it. I'm I'm like yeah. I said, I'm sort of a historian. Now, I ain't never been that big on trying to get bunches of money from people, you know. I'm, I'm, like I said, I wasn't a good businessman and I own up to that. So I I ain't mad at nobody, I ain't hating on nobody, none of that. I believe in karma. What you do comes what good. If you do good it comes around. You do bad yeah, that's gonna come around too. That's right. That's All right. right. I mean Yeah, well credit though should be given where credit's due. Yes, yeah, you're true. That's, that's right the way now. I look at it, and you know, if, if there was a handshake, you know what? That, that's an agreement. Well, I thought so too, and I'm gonna. Well, you renewed my faith, and I'm a, probably I'll be looking like a fool when I go to court, but I'm I'm willing to do that. You know, well, well, let me I'm not trying this. to sue nobody. I'm just I'm trying to well, get recognition. Right, just do and, and there's just nothing just wrong with that. Let me ask you this: Out of yes, sir. These big films that, I mean, these these are all-time great films. We're not talking about small-time. And they're still making money today. What, is there any proof that you have at all of stuff that's been written, notes, recordings, anything no, of that nature? No, because usually I gave that to the people. Because it was the only copy, you know, I'm, I'm putting something together. The only proof I would have is if somebody's still living who was there when it happened? Mm-hmm. So in New York, I've got Cliff Frazier, who produced Claudine. He was there when I put together Shaft. In fact, part of the lyric, of the opening lyric, was, who's the black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks? You know, he's a yeah. private detective, right? That's right. Well, you'll hear uh, of the next part of that lyric is, shut your mouth. Yeah, so, who's a black private dick? Who's a sex machine? All the chicks, set your mouth. And and then the other part of that lyric is, what for? I'm just talking about Shaft. Well, that <laughs> oh. was Cliff Frazier, who was the, my boss, put me through school, right? 
Mm-hmm. He was coming by to see what Kenneth Up was doing with this tape recorder. And he advised me not to do it. But then when he heard me say, who's a black private dick? He, 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 we in a graduation. And somebody said dick. <laughs> Especially around white women. <laughs> Excuse me from that for that vibe. But, you know, back in the day, the interracial thing was very touch and go. You mm-hmm. know, you, white women did not kiss black men on screen. But a lot of people don't realize that that was just a few short years ago where that was a big no-no. You could get your film kicked off the list. You couldn't show. If Watermelon Man... Oh, they, man. Classic. That was yep. the first... And I worked on that movie, too. That was a movie that I... I Melvin Van Peebles got his first job, and I got Melvin his job at director of Watermelon Man. Based on knowing him, he's from Chicago, and his real name is Melvin Peebles. But he added Van Peebles when he went to France... And he had done a movie called A Three-Day Pass. And when Columbia was looking for someone to direct Watermelon Man, which was a black comedy starring Godfrey Cambridge and Estelle Parsons, they put out auditions, and Melvin Van Peebles auditioned for it. And the, I was one of the advisors to Robert Schneider, who was the head of Columbia Studio. I was one of the few black people he trusted and talked to. And he threw this resume in the garbage, and I asked him, what was it about? He said, uh, well, this guy, you said we had to deal with, we had to find a American black. And this guy is European black. He's from Europe. He's coming from France, and his name is Van Peebles. And I said, okay, but let me take a look at that. Because I kind of noticed when he was throwing this photo, I saw a picture. I look at the photo, and I look at it, I said, wait a minute, this brother's from Chicago. Because I remember him, his father was a tailor. In Chicago, on 39th Street is where I saw him. He used to sell clothes like up on 34th Street where you go up there and get the seconds and the clothes and you people would come down the street with a rack. That's right. Well, he was he did that in Chicago with a shopping cart. Wow. And his father was a tailor. And the reason why I met him was my sister, we had just finished leaving the show. We was watching a movie, Stormy Weather, with... You know, we used to watch these nickel movies back in the day. And my sister was 13 and just sprouting and, you know, looking cute. And this grown man with this clothes says, hey, girl, you look great in this here. Here, go in the alley and try this on. (laughs) Well, that was, you know, back in the day, that was, I don't know if it was okay, but it was not okay with me because that's my sister. And I kill a brick about man. I told him. I said, look here, man, this is my sister, and I don't care if I'm 12, 13 years old, 11, 12 years old. I, that my sister's three years old, so I had to be 10 or 11. I told him I'd whoop his ass, and he looked down at me like I was, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> but I knew karate. I learned karate when I was 8, 10 years old, so I was a rough little customer. And uh, so anyway, I pointed him out, and I said, no, this guy's from Chicago. I said, look into his background. And see if he's not from Chicago. He's an American. And sure enough, his agent said, yes, Melvin's originally from Chicago. Boom. But they didn't want to talk to his agent because his agent was very pushy. They said, we'll go through you. So I'm the guy that got Melvin Van Peebles his job. Wow. First job. Now, the second thing is, after that, he came, he got the job. They assigned me to 
help, you know, to make sure he didn't get mugged in New York and all this other stuff. Like I told you with Gil Scott here in the last Poets, yeah. Harlem and all that, I was a tough dude who wasn't taking no stuff. And mm-hmm. I, and so they wanted me to make sure he didn't get mugged while he's making this movie. <laughs> okay. So he wanted to go see the white girls. I'm just putting Uh-oh. it out there like that. You know? <laughs> that was, he was a and you want to mess with the cream? Yeah, he just wanted to, you know, where the white girls at? Where the white girls with money? <clears throat> right. So I took him to a gallery party uh, in Soho, down in the village, right? Mm-hmm. Where he met a lady who owned the art gallery. Promptly seduced her and caused her marriage to break up. Within a month, she was getting a divorce. And he got to stay in the apartment that he had you know the reason for the divorce is her husband came home and caught him in bed together wow yeah that was ugly and see I didn't like the idea he saw a black man in the bed with his wife yeah he didn't do nothing he just walked in filed for a divorce wow that's how Melvin and Peebles and I'm saying it straight up and Melvin know me and, and and the problem with that is, I told Melvin I wasn't cool with it, and I told him I was not going to be taking him to no more parties or whatever. Well, he wanted me to write a movie for him while he was directing uh, the um, movie Watermelon Man and negotiate for him. So I negotiated him to write the soundtrack. They were looking for somebody to write the soundtrack. Melvin said he could do it. He got another fifty thousand dollars on the deal for doing that. I negotiated for. Him. Then uh, he wanted me to write a movie for him about a revolutionary pimp. Mm-hmm. Well, I told him that's an antithetical uh, character because the Black Panthers and everybody else was saying those are the people we need to get rid of—the drug dealers and the pimps. Right? That's that right. Was, well, that was. The, I'm, I'm just saying that was the thought of the day. But he kept, you know, I want to write a story just like uh, Superfly was about a drug dealer who gets out of the business. And that was uh, why I did it for for Gordon Parks Jr. Because uh, he said, you know, he needed, he wanted to tell the story about somebody who does not stay in, he doesn't glorify it that much. But right. he ended up glorifying it because he told me he was going to use real coke. And the producer of that real movie coke. was... Oh, he man. Used, every scene you see in that movie when they're snorting is real cocaine. Oh, wow. Man. They shot it on a 16-millimeter film and bumped it up to 35. Man. The processing was done uh, at, du- at uh, B&H downtown. And the sound mix was done by Jimmy Williams of Magic No Sound which is on 47th Street, right down there by George and Cohen statue. Mm-hmm. That's the history of Superfly for you. Wow. And I put him on all of that. And, uh, yeah, so he, um, that was part of, you know, that was some of the things that I was doing. But going back to Shaft. Yeah, well, before you continue. Yes, sir. What What about the music? Did you, oh, the music, did you have yeah. a hand? Did you have a hand in the music? As well. Yeah, I put the music together. Here's how it went. Uh, well, Isaac Hayes, he's gotten credit for that. His... Isaac Hayes, and then just for your audience knowledge, you know, 
And I confronted Isaac with this a while back, and I'll tell you about how that went. Okay. Isaac Hayes was a, had just finished doing an album called Hot Buttered Soul. It was a hit of 1969, 19, yeah, 68, 69. It was a big hit. All of the records were like country western by the time I get to Phoenix and that kind of stuff, right? He was covering other music. It turns out, and I knew Isaac Hayes from Nashville because I'd gone down to Tennessee State when I was a kid, and he had a nightclub down there. Well, the bottom line on it is Isaac Hayes at the time was illiterate. By illiterate, I mean he could not write his name. He had to sign an X. The way I found out about this was that Kenneth Utt told me that they had approached Isaac Hayes to write the score for Shaft, and he couldn't do it because he couldn't write a note of music. He could not write his own name. He couldn't sign anything. So I told wow. him, well, look, what I'll do is I'll do the lyrics for you, and he'll play it. He's got a band. He can do it. I said, you're going to tape record it? Here's how it's going to go. And then that's how I started out with the lyrics, you know. Who's a black private this week? The question, answer, response, which is a common practice in Baptist church, is the call and response. Mm-hmm. So I use, you know, the question, who's a black private dick? Who's a black machine, a sex machine to all the chicks? Shaft, that's who. Who's the man who risks his nest for his brother man? Shaft. And it was staccato music. And that was with horns. So you use brass. I told him to use a section of brass, trumpets, and horns playing in staccato. Use a bass guitar to establish the rhythm line. And uh, use tubas, which is common in uh, football games. The, the sounds, the battle of the bands that were going on in the South were very big. Like Southern Illinois, you know, Southern Methodist and Grambling. Mm-hmm. had dynamite bands, right. marching bands. And he was using some of that orchestration in his music already. So what I did was to define it and say, use that so that he would easily understand when he heard my lyrics where to go with the music. So that was sent on the tape recorder to Isaac Hayes. And when Isaac came here in Chicago, as you know, I did a couple of movies for him. I wrote also as well, not directly with him and, you know, on the premise, but through people. And the one was Truck Turner, which was shot in Chicago. And he even opened up his restaurant in Chicago. When I went to Washington, D.C. to be a news cameraman, he went to Washington, D.C. and married his first wife, Mignon. So he had been around and he knew who I was, but he never stepped up and said, this guy, he just followed around waiting for me to drop another free movie on his ass. <laughs> what you going to do? I gave him and the brother didn't come right. I stepped him. I didn't even go to his, they asked me for a meeting at his restaurant and they kept me waiting for an hour and I seen that's some bullshit. I, I can't mess with this dude. He's he raw and he yeah. was off in the drugs. You know. Barry White same way. Did all that because him and Barry White were at you know everybody was telling Barry that he was imitating Isaac Hayes and I met Barry White in Washington D.C. But let me go back to Shaft. So anyway, Shaft and Do Your Thing was the two songs that I put together for Isaac Hayes, wow. and as well as Bumpy's Lament, 
and uh, Reggio's. Those were the themes. Each one of the scenes would have a theme. And so that's how I put together that soundtrack. And uh, it worked pretty well, and the Son of a Gun won an Academy Award, right? I was going to say, that's... So you know I'm sitting there, but I but from from my perspective, I left all that behind in New York after I graduated. I got a job in Washington, D.C. as the first black television news cameraman for WMAL-TV, <clears throat> ABC Channel 7, owned by the Evening Star Broadcasting Group, the Evening Star Newspaper. Top newspaper in D.C. at the time. Superstation, right? Uh, so I became a television documentary. They hired me for documentary film making and news film. So I went to work in a documentary film unit, and I had the golden touch. I came in, promised them an Emmy Award, won the Emmy, and two Emmy nominations. was nominated for Cameraman of the Year for covering the Vietnam War protests. Right. And the reason I was successful was because I was a veteran myself, and I would wear my Army Vietnam uh, fatigue jacket, jungle jackets they call it, and the veterans would only allow me to take most of these pictures you see of the candlelight vigil of the veterans, the throwing their medals on the Capitol steps, and the uh, shots of the war protest from the... Uh, Washington Monument <clears throat> down on the crowds down the mall I shot that I was the only cameraman allowed to go up into the uh, Washington uh, Monument to take pictures of it and I was the only cameraman that the veterans would allow to take pictures of them because they didn't trust the press they thought all of us were liars you know back in those days yeah. and I was the, the only black guy so they trusted me just for being there and, be, and being a veteran and so they told all the rest of them, if you come up with it, they used to beat people up and take their cameras. Yeah, I seen that last night in the Freedom Fighters. Yeah, that's what black people was doing it too. And the, and the veterans certainly was doing it. They told them. So that's how you, the stuff you see on air, the archive footage of it, I shot. Yeah. But I ain't got no credit for that. Okay. And with the uh, documentary film I won, it was called The Tangle Roots of Crime. Now, my name is in the credits for that. Okay. And that was uh, a documentary about the crime epidemic in Washington. They were like, robbing like 300-something banks a, a year, which is more days than you got in a week. The banks was open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was getting the stories. I, uh, President Nixon took a liking to me. I was the first black cameraman he saw. So he asked me to be a White House press photographer, and I was. And uh, little known story for Watergate was uh, I uh, figure into that in that I was the contact. Or the, I'm the one that introduced the second man in command of the FBI to Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley of the Washington Post because my newspaper wouldn't take the story. We had already known, the press already knew that Nixon's uh, campaign people, G. Gordon Liddy, were going to break into wherever the Democratic National Headquarters were and play dirty tricks. That was common back then. Yeah. And uh, it was going to be a Watergate. It was decided that they were going to be a Watergate. I had won an Emmy, and the guy who was my producer's name was Clark Pangle. 
Clark lived in Watergate. They were building Watergate at the time. It was unfinished, but he had a condo there. And he offered, out of gratitude for me, because I was working in low wages as an apprentice, you know, at apprentice level, as an, as an engineer, you have to go through two years of National Association of Broadcast Engineers and Technicians when I belong to the union. So he offered to get me a job as night watchman at Watergate. And instead of me taking the job, this young man from Georgia that I saw was watching me taking, do shooting the news and asked me how I got my job. I told him he wouldn't be able to do my job, but I could get him a job at night watchman if he didn't have a record and was clean. And he would report to me what went on there at the Democratic National Headquarters. If anybody broke in, he was to call my station, Channel 7, and the Washington, D.C. police and not try to stop him because they would have killed him. Yeah. Which is what how Frank Wills handled Watergate. That's one, right? The other look is the tapes. Uh, Nixon, every president has a... Barack Obama will have a library built for him when he leaves the office. So at the time, Nixon was going into his second term or the first term. He wanted to have his his day-to-day operations as a president uh, archived, preserved by way of audio tapes. So that every conversation he had in the White House Oval Room was to be taped. Mm-hmm. The only four men in the country... Uh, were there to do that and I'm one of them the only black one and he asked for me because I was special forces and had top secret security and all of the other engineers were also had to have top secret security swear an oath of secrecy not even the FBI knew of it the existence because he didn't like Herbert Hoover J. Edgar Hoover not Herbert Hoover J. Edgar Hoover and he didn't want J. Edgar Hoover to know about it Mm -hmm. so that Watergate was at a standstill until I told who is now known as Deep Throat, who was the second in command at the FBI. He asked me, and he kind of forced me to tell him. Said, if "I told anybody who he was or how the story got out there that something bad might happen to me or my family." Wow. That's how the FBI handled brothers back then, you know. Oh yeah, uh, most definitely. But uh, so. I came through and I saw a lot, a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination, but I survived and I kept my integrity, you know, I, wow. I, I, uh, I went through the changes, you know, I used to drink cognac, and mm-hmm. chase women and do all the, you know, things a young man does. And Well, you're a Hennessy man. Wow. No, Remy Martin, <laughs> no, but I worked for, no, here's part of my thing. I, I put... Cognac on the map for African American drinkers. I started. Work, I've been drinking Remy Martin, BSOP for forty years since I was nineteen, twenty years old, wow. and I became the regional manager for Remy Martin Cognacs in the eighties, and I began to uh, promote Remy Martin. I, I invented the recipe for Remy Red. Sounds like sounds like Brad. We got a new sponsor. The people who owned them were premier wine merchants of France. That was who I worked for at the time. Mm-hmm. And Hennessy is owned by Somerset Shefflin. And you need to go, that's who you need to go to for your sponsorship. Because France, hey. I mean, I, but you, you go to Somerset Shefflin in New York because I helped them put together 
the Hennessy Comedy, Bernie Mac and a few other people came through our comedy, uh, which were supported by Cavassier, mm-hmm. Hennessy. I put all that together. I was a beverage industry consultant. So, yeah, you should definitely be looking at a beverage industry. But you, you remember to have a disclaimer, and that is always say drink responsibly and uh, don't drive. But I was uh, one who got them on radio and TV and where they were banned. Really, I put back, put them back out there. But it's it's cognac was one of the finest drinks in the world. And wow. I tried to put a class act on it, and it worked. And it also brought a lot of brothers who ordinarily would not uh, recognize something that you call with class and style. That's right. European, they would not respect it, but they learned to respect because I gave them a lesson in it. You know, I would. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, that's a lot of the stuff that. Wow, you're just dropping, you're just dropping it on us. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, we need a part I, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I mean, we we definitely going to have you on, but before we kind of try to tie this up and. Yes, sir. You know, we're going to have to do a definitely another segment with you. Is okay. You've also written, and I want to get to this quickly, but you've also written for some of the, some other legendary singers out there. Can you can you enlighten us? Uh, just okay, briefly the names the and, and their are, songs. I will, uh, Chaka Khan, Through the Fire. Through the to Fire. Through the fire to the limit. That was a soldier. That song was inspired as a soldier going Vietnam soldier, who describing his girlfriend that he would go through a firefight for her love. All right, wow. Chaka was a kid. I put her with ABC Dunhill Records, and uh, she was off into drugs, so I couldn't hang with her, you know. But I wrote her first album, a bunch of her songs. Marvin Gaye's uh, "What's Going On," "What's Happening, Brother." Distant Mom, lover. Gay. He lived, his family lived in Washington, D.C. And uh, his brother, Frankie Gay, came to me and asked me to write songs when he found out I was writing songs. Uh, and asked me to help Marvin because Marvin was broken up with Tammy Terrell died. He had just had fathered an, an illegitimate child by Jan, a groupie, when he was married to Anna Gay, who was Barry Gordy's sister. Mm-hmm. Anna Gordy. And she was very upset with him. She had, you know, so the girl was hiding out at Frankie Gay's basement apartment in Washington at the time. And they begged me to come, and I came there and saw the baby. Marvin's baby was a little girl named Nona, nine months old. So they asked me if I'd write some songs for them because Archie Stewart and uh, Roberta Flack and a few other people in town told him I was good. I was writing for Roberta. I did Roberta Flack, Donny Hathaway, and uh, the Christmas song for Donny Hathaway. And I uh, just came here to dance and a few other things for Roberta Flack. And, uh, but anyway, Marvin Gaye, well, I put that together at Frankie Gaye's apartment and used my drum as a drum line. I play Congo drums. The lyrics and, uh, lyrics and music. Lyrics and music. The lyrics were of a brother coming back from Vietnam. Frankie Gay, his brother, was a veteran. 
and my, a lot of my stuff have to do with veterans' experience. And so that was it. I may call it coming back to the world. Right. You know, and say, hey, what's happening, brother? What's going on? And I was in the news business, so what's going on was a greeting for a newsman on the street. Mm-hmm. They saw me on the street with my news camera. Say, hey, brother, what's going on? You know, that became a song. And uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, Ecology was a, uh, real quick, was a um, nuclear reactor that was built in the Chesapeake Bay that year. And all of the blue crabs and seafood were dying in the Chesapeake Sound because uh-huh. of it. You know what Chesapeake is. Yes. And so we did a documentary on it. And what it was was we found out years later that the uh, heat temperature was rising by just one or two degrees. It was too warm for the crabs. They were cold water animals and they were dying mm-hmm. because of the reactor. But it wasn't because of radiation. And so that was determined in our documentary. And I was that was fresher on my mind. And that was where, oh, mercy, mercy, me, things ain't what they used to be, you know. Uh, radiation underground and in the sky animals who live nearby are dying whoa whoa mercy mercy me things ain't wow. what they used to be that was that's, by lyric that's, that's, and that was wow. how I wrote it and I gave tape recorded it for Frankie Gay Nona Gay came I mean uh, Jan Gay came out and asked if this is for Marvin and I said yes she took the tape and ran into the room and locked the door I said hey Frankie what's going on he said, oh, she's real protective about Marvin. So I said, well, look, I want my name on my stuff. That ain't right. Marvin. <laughs> Shit, I wrote this, brother. Not, you know. Yeah. She's, she's pretty with light skin and fine and all that shit, but that's Marvin Gaye's girlfriend. You know, that is my work. Well, you know how Barry Gordy is, I don't know. So I tried to do that. I did Midnight Train to Georgia for, for Gladys Knight. Stevie wanted to keep on marching until we reached the highest ground. Superstition. Nappy-headed boy. Looking back on when I was a little nappy-headed boy. And for Christmas, what would be my tour? So, Natalie Cole, this will be. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. All their first stuff. Earth, Wind, and Fire? Well, they from Chicago. Wow. Maurice White. His first gig was in Sweet in the movie Sweetback. That was the Melvin Van Peebles told me to look them up because they were the band who played the movie in Sweetback. You look at Sweetback, you're gonna see the band. That was Earth Wind and Fire. That's it. And then I, I wrote back in the day. Yeah, and I wrote some lyrics for all the Shining Star, Keep Your Head to the Sky, another paratrooper thing. Oh man. Uh and Maurice White. Now I will kick Maurice White's ass if I ever see him. I'm gonna say that on radio. <laughs> <laughs> he just, He's just looking for you. Philip Philip Bailey is cool with me. Philip Witness. Philip Bailey, yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a, I asked him, Are y'all Christians? Because 'Cause I'm trying to make sure I don't deal with no more bullshit hustlers. Right, and they said, "Yeah." And Philip Bailey apologized for Maurice White. Maurice White is raw; he ain't no good. Don't do no business with him if you ever see him. And uh, I did show and tell for Al Green, Lady Marmalade for what's her name, Nerna Hendricks, and uh, Patty Labelle. I mean, I people was coming to the, the place I used to hang out. Jim Croce, I did uh, Bad Bad Leroy Brown. 
was a white boy at a bar. Southern white boy that Crosby, Stills, and Nash came in. And I did Diamond Girl for them. Uh, what is like the... You need to get some credit where the credit is due. We have wow. somebody for you. You know, you play. guys are helping me by putting the word out that there is somebody. Yeah. I've taken a lot of Texas tests. As a matter of fact, she, uh, LC knows who she is, Miss uh, Cheryl Potts. We have somebody with the copyright uh, searches no. and stuff like that. And, and matter of fact, we're going to have her on the show in the near future. So when she does come on, uh, yeah. we're going we're gonna to friend you to her and get you connected. So she does. She's a uh, an expert on finding royalties for people like yourself. And I'm well, pretty man, sure you will be. All, you, all you the got stuff that you have, you can do that yeah. for me. And I'm 64. Yeah. We're gonna, and I'm we're gonna let everybody know to, about your show. We're gonna we're gonna definitely have to hook you up with Miss Cheryl Potts down in Virginia and uh, get get something. I mean, you've done too much for me to even swallow. I mean, all these hits, man. These. These are millions of dollars that that have been uh, yeah. well, yeah, been generated. Yeah, George Clinton was put through the same thing that you've been put through, so and he finally oh, yeah. got his money after all these years. So I'm I'm pretty sure you can do something also. So we, we're gonna work on that. Well, uh, gentlemen, be another show. That's gonna be another show. I we're really appreciate really you. And I'm gonna let you go because I know I've been talking to you for two hours. Hey, yeah, hey. well, you know what? Be <laughs> just hey. tuning in. And, and we are going to wrap. You've been listening to Mr. Bernard Williams Jr. Sure. And the amount of hits, whether it be movies or music, is almost endless. And I will, I will ask you this, and, yes, and we'll, we'll pretty wrap it. You got to be trying to do something else. Is there anything in the works that you're writing or yeah, trying I to still get out write there? Songs. I still write songs. And uh, I still write films. The only thing is I don't show them to people. I can't afford a lawyer and stuff like that. So I keep them under wraps, but I still got a song catalog. I do film festivals every year. I do jazz festivals and music festivals here in Chicago that I co-produce. I'm on the board of the Black United Fund of Illinois. We've given over $20 million out to grassroots organizations in Chicago. I'm one of the senior board members. I've been a board member for Habitat for Humanity. So I try to do good things and not dwell on lost fortunes. I think I'm still good enough to write a hit record today. All right, sounds and, good. Uh, so I'm, and I'm, I run Chicago's office for rolling out Steed Media Newspaper. We're the largest African-American on weekly in the nation now with uh, 19 cities. So I'm still hanging in there. You know, I'm a dinosaur, but I'm... Still standing. <laughs> We're gonna make something happen. Though. That's yeah. Well, I appreciate definitely, you. We're definitely yeah. gonna have you on again. Thank you. To do uh, another segment, because I mean, we could talk politics with you probably another two hours. Yeah, yeah. you could. As well, I can tell you about it from Barack Obama on up. There we go. Near five blocks down the street from. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, be, God bless you, boy. But that will be for uh, another night. We appreciate you coming on and. And sharing uh, history with us and making history on the LC and Jack Radio Show with my man Brad. Yes, sir. And uh, we, we will, I will circle back with you in a little bit. So you enjoy your evening, and we'll talk to you real soon there, uh, Mr. Williams. 
Well, you made an enjoyable evening for me, and you, boy, you young men, you brothers have a sense of history, and I appreciate that. And I think it's going to uh, take you very We appreciate you. We appreciate you the same. Yes, we Thank do. You. God bless. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. God bless. And I'm a shout-out to New York. New York, New York. <laughs> <laughs> make it there. You can make it anywhere. That's, That's right. It. New That's York. We love you. Oh, we're not. All right. Oh, Fred, I tell you, another great show. Yes, sir. Another great guest. Yes, sir. Wow, my head is still spinning. Yes, sir. I can't keep up with the amount of <laughs> hit songs, hit, hit movies that this man has. Oh man! Get it, get it right. It's unbelievable the amount of impact he's had on. Yeah, he's on, on top on of this game. world. He's on top of his game. He's very knowledgeable of everything. I mean, he just blow me away. Blow I tell away. you, unbelievable. Well, Brett, hey, wait, wait, we're two hours deep. You got yeah. any shout outs before we wrap it? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm just having two birthdays today because I had a list with this list was too long tonight. Yeah, that's uh, right. Well, we're I'm going to give a birthday. Uh, well, I got a birthday shout out to Miss Dawn Brewer, Janice Pua, Regine Lamore, and Tanya Smith. Those are my birthday shout outs this evening on the LC and Jack Show. I got more shout-outs, but I'm going to save it for next Tuesday. Uh, Memorial Day week coming up. So uh, i have that list together on our next show. All right? Yeah, the bread. Yep. I just got a couple, and then we're going to get out of here. It's been a great show. It's legendary. We made history tonight. Just want to say uh, a big up to John Exum, John Benton, Sanji Crawford Clark, and to my homegirl, Way out in Arizona. Want to say up to Susan Rogers. Say what's up. Big up to her, listener of the show. Uh, we thank you again for tuning in for uh, a great show. And um, we look forward to seeing you again for another edition of the LC and Jack Radio Show next Tuesday evening, 7.30. Till next week, good night. Peace.